Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. With a fresh new song MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis It's gorgeous outside, it's 40 degrees But the sun is shining And this is going to be fantastic Three generations of dads playing traditional roles in each other's lives arrive simultaneously at significant crossroads. The decisions they make and the actions they will take will directly and internally affect each other. We have Robert, we have his son, and we have Jonah. And we have a very, very, very interesting show when different perspectives lead to misunderstanding that remain unspoken. Sometimes it takes a lot in order to overcome them. Good morning, Stephen Manchester, the author of Dad. Good morning. Thank you so much, Fran, for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, I'm glad. This is a really important book, and it's great. And um, like I tell everybody um, at the end of the show, (laughs) my dermatologist gets all the books for his wife. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going next week just to visit and say hi, and he's going to get about 50 books because that's how much I read in the last two months. And I was telling him about yours, and he says, yeah, I need that. So she's going to put it on her shelf. So tell us, give us a brief summary. And you said this is a true story, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's based on fact, for sure. So my dad passed away four years ago. Um, so, you know, after grieving his loss, and he was, you know, such a funny man, and he had, you know, he was an amazing dad. I mean, he wasn't perfect, but he was perfect for me and my siblings, right? And um, I just thought, you know, I, I need to memorialize and honor him and basically find a way to thank him. So I ended up writing Dad a novel, and I talked to uh, Lou Aronica, my publisher at, at the Story Plant, and... He was like, listen, you know, we don't want to exploit feelings, but, and I said, no, I get it. I mean, it's fresh. And I really decided, friend, I said, you know, based on my own experiences as, as a father, so I'm, you know, I'm 55 years old. I'm, you know, in, in that middle age, uh, my dad just passed. And, you know, I have sons who are of the age, you know, who could have children, right? They've been, they don't have any yet, but they could. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to write, a story about fatherhood, but through the perspective, mm-hmm. or three di- three different perspectives, right, of different seasons in our lives. Uh, so the grandfather, right, in his retirement, he, you know, he digs ill. Uh, then you have his son, Oliver, who's, you know, middle-aged, who needs to look after his father. But then he discovers his son, Jonah, at 19 years old, uh, is going to be a father himself. So the book really is about almost like peeling back the curtain and showing mm-hmm. – glimpses of fatherhood, but at different stages in our lives. That's amazing because most people, when um, they have a child that doesn't know they're going to be a father at 19 years old, they begin to not understand that these things happen and you have to embrace it and do something about it, not push sure, the person absolutely. away. Trust right. me, I do know this, but what could I say? <laughs> um, right, right. 
So you have, tell us about Robert, Oliver, and Jonah and their relationships because they were not exactly perfect. No, they weren't. You know, I, I love to write flawed characters because I think it makes, you know, the story more real and relatable to people. I mean, we all, you know, mm-hmm. have, a, have our things right, that we deal with. So uh, Robert, you know, picture, picture an old-timer, uh, an older man in his, you know, early 70s, mid-70s, uh, you know, retired. And suddenly, you know, he takes ill, and he starts to really take account of what kind of father he was, uh, more specifically what he wasn't. And he want to make he you know he really wants to make amends for that uh, as he moves you know moves closer to to heading home right and then you have Oliver who's in, in his mid fifties um, who really is or early fifties he's actually you know he's having trouble so think stereotypical mm-hmm. midlife crisis right uh, you know I've been at my career for a long time what's next mm-hmm. you know the marriage is not you know the passion driven relationship that it used to be my kids used to, you know, used to need me. Now it's just more financial. They don't even ask me for rides anymore. They have their licenses. So mm-hmm. it's all the stuff that we contend with as parents. And I think this probably holds true for women as well, being moms. Um, well, you have to deal with that, that point in your life where you're like, oh, boy, like, you know, the purpose that I've, I've maintained for the last 20, 30 years as a parent no longer mm-hmm. exists. So I, I'm not sure you need to reinvent yourself, but you definitely need to figure out, you know, what's mm-hmm. next, right? Because it's, I mean, it's all about staying in the moment, but uh, you have to look ahead a little bit as well. And then finally, Jonah, uh, 19, going on 20, kind of lost in the world. What I liked about this was he comes from a generation where he's been essentially given everything, right? So he's been mm-hmm. pampered and coddled and more or less raised like Beale. So um, all of a sudden he faces the fact that, you know, he's going to be a dad, and he's ill-prepared for that role. So what I did is I took this really, really complex storyline, and I weave it in and out where – you don't have, you know, the grandfather is dealing with his son, and then the grandfather has a relationship with his grandson, the grandson with his father, and it goes on and on and on. So we weave this tapestry of what it's like, you know, to be raised uh, a man by a man, and then what the expectations and roles are, right? So obviously the grandfather sees the world very differently. He comes from a different generation than his son, you know, so he never coddled his son, and then his son coddled. His grandson, you know what I mean? So it's it's all of that mm-hmm. stuff that's generational as well, where there's such, such significant difference in the way that people are raised. Uh, I don't know what, what's in store for the next generation, but I can tell you, you know, we've raised, my wife and I have raised four kids, and, you know, I'm proud of all of them. They're all successful, and they're all great kids, and they've become, you know, really wonderful adults. But it took a while. It took a while, right? I, I, I remember growing up much quicker than they did. All I could tell you is that, I grew up around the same time you did, and I didn't mm-hmm. get spoiled at all. Are you kidding? No. I From the day I turned, I don't even know how old I really am. We're doing an ancestry. It's a whole big mess on that one. And um, I had to work since I was 10. My dad owned a cleaning store in a bad area in the Bronx, and it was if you wanted allowance money, you had to work there on Saturday. There was no discussion in the matter. I didn't get everything I wanted. I lived in a dinky apartment on Southern Boulevard in Chiamat in the South Bronx with my grandparents. And you know what? It was just fine. I didn't get all the toys and all the spoiled. And as a matter of fact, if I didn't get 100 on every test, I got punished and I had to write it over, even if I got 99. My mother was very tough on me. And at one point, my sister said, you possibly probably because you're not really my sister. And I said, no wonder I'm smarter than you. And I never, I never bothered. Yeah, 
Oh, oh yeah, let me tell you. Uh, um, my mom was tough. My father was different, and basically you had to earn everything. And my brother right. is the same way with my four nephews, three nephews. Thank God really? they, they know that, yeah, yeah. well, one just started another job in um, infrastructure, in a financial advisor. He's mm-hmm. a brilliant kid. The other one does baseball analytics, and the other one is going on a baseball scholarship. Hopefully he gets something at the end of the year, but no. Right. So I, I can understand, and it's hard. Relationships take time, but I'm the aunt, so I get to spoil, do whatever I want. They can't do anything. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I actually, I'm the one they call when they have a problem with anything, and I'm the one if they need a homework assignment or essay written like yesterday after my surgery. That's it. Yeah, so why was why were Robert and Oliver's relationship so strained? That's not unusual for father and son. Yeah, I think you know Oliver comes comes from a generation being an older man where you know he was raised by a heavy-handed person, right? By, by his father, who was probably mm-hmm. you know very you know, a physical disciplinarian, uh, which is obviously frowned on today, but it was all about respect. It didn't matter how you came to that. And in most cases, it would have been fear-driven. So he raised his son the only way he knew how. And I and I think, you know, that generation as well, it wasn't about, hey, let me go outside and play catch with my son. No, let me go to work and put shoes on his feet and put, you know, food on his plate. Mm-hmm. And that's how you showed love, right? That's how you showed love. And I think that's evolved through the ages where, you know, I think dads are still doing the same today. But I think in some cases we've evolved a little bit more where we're more empathetic and compassionate and and maybe even more comfortable in our own skin, if I can say that. Like, I I have a background in law enforcement. You know, I, I serve in a combat environment in Desert Storm. So I'm not afraid of conflict. I'm not afraid of, you know, standing up and, and, and you know, be, being that person. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also, I also have a sensitive side, right? So I wanted to show my children both sides of that, right? And teach them that you can be all of that. You don't have to be, you know, this, this crunchy on the outside, gooey on the inside, and you don't show anybody. Like for me, it takes, it takes courage and it takes, again, be, being able to be vulnerable with your own children and showing them like, Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give you an example. My sons, when they were younger, right, if you if you fell down and skinned your knee and you started crying, I'd be like, get up. You know what I mean? Like, stop. Stop crying, mm-hmm. right? And then, but if it was something that really hurt them and they were emotionally distraught over it, then I I was never opposed to that. I would tell them, hey, listen, it's okay to cry. I cry. You know, that's how we get all that toxins out of us, right? But, you know, so, so I, I think we've evolved, you know, as people, not just dads, but I think parents as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if we've if we've evolved too much, but, um, yeah, I, I think for, for Robert, in the book, you know, he was missing from his son's life for a lot of what, what happened, right? And his son resented him for it. But what the mm-hmm. son never really understood was he, he showed love the only way he knew how was to go to work and to provide for his son, right? So I think that's where you see the strains. And then later on, they try to explain it to each other. No, I understand what you're saying. Um, my father was never home because he was working seven days a week. And I guess yeah. maybe because I worked in the store on Saturday. And I had, my sister had to do the cash register because she was the, the pretty one. And they put me in the back with the presser. So I, I can spot and, and, and check work. I can't even tell you how to get the stains out. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Right. Wow. But you know what? <laughs> Everybody was different. And, and, you know, didn't think to bother me. I didn't care. So right. t- tell us about Jenny 
and why she wanted to spend less time with Oliver and why she didn't want to go for marriage counseling. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I had different roads that I could have taken with that character. So Ginny being, uh, you know, Oliver's wife, they've been married for who knows, you know, how many years, 20, 30 years. And they're at a place in their relationship where it's essentially become a loveless marriage, right? There's, there's little mm-hmm. to no passion. There's no, you know, they're just kind of going through the motion. And I think there's a crossroads when people get to a point, and I've seen it happen with multiple friends where, you know, the last kid moves off to college or finishes college, and then they put the house up for sale and call it quits, right? And they were just together because of the kids. That's the one thing that they, you know, that was the common denominator. So I wanted a relationship where we, we, we kind of had them on the cusp of that. And then the question is, was there enough love or enough spark there to reignite this marriage, right, and to remind both of them that they're, they're together for a reason and that they love each other independent of the kids. So in the beginning, I made it because obviously this, is, this, is, this book was written from a male perspective to a female audience, but I wanted mm-hmm. some strong, strong female characters in there, and I think Ginny's one of those where – hey, listen, this is not the life I want either, right? So let's kind of figure it out. And then what happens, obviously, as you know, in the book, you know, the communication opens up between the two of them, and then they need to be reminded of why they got together in the first place. That's interesting. Um, You know, when you mentioned your son falling down and you're not Mm -hmm. telling, you know, not crying, I I can empathize with that one. I got my right. somebody close somebody closed my thumb on a car door, and my mother just said, "Well, go get it fixed. Don't worry about it." Right. And the, right. yeah, so yeah, yeah, you crying just didn't go anywhere. You just just didn't, you right. know, you're yeah. not can. And you know right. what? Sometimes you sometimes you have to toughen up and buck up. And sometimes you have to say, "Oh well, what can I say? I'm gonna sit down the right. telephone and scream." <laughs> so tell us why. <laughs> tell us why Robert criticizes Oliver for enabling Jonah. There's a lot of that going on in every family, even now. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't think I, I don't think you know o- the older generation really understands. You know, I, if you think about it, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. when you deny a kid something, right, you you make them work for it. So, you know, there, there is mm-hmm. a first thing without question of, of tough love, right? And I think the older generation, the mm-hmm. way they raised their kids, was tough love. Part of it, I think, was due because they didn't have you know, what we have, they didn't have the abundance that we have, right? There there was Mm -hmm. less for them to give. So, um, you know, what they could give was, was wings. Right. And I think that was pretty much the premise of the story. He's trying to tell his son, like every time you give my grandson something, you actually hurt him. Right. Mm -hmm. From from being able to, to become resourceful and somebody who's prepared to go out and face the world. And that's really I think the gist of this whole story is like when you look at the mm-hmm. generations of, and how they think the correct way of parenting is, Robert's never going to agree with Oliver, but I needed to bring them to a place where they respected each other, even mm-hmm. though they disagreed. Well, right. I could tell you that I'm very proud of my, my nieces, well, one niece that does not enable anybody. And right. The other, the other, the others, and the that does actually they've they've become more independent because they said you have to have a, a a career of your own, you have to have money of your own, and you can't depend on your parents to take care of you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And, and actually, two out of three. We're working on the third one. 
you know, right. because he's a 16, 16, is in high school. And I finally got him to get his grades up, so that helps. But you know what? You can't enable people okay. because then they figure when they get to be older and adults that you're going to bail them out if they get in trouble. Right, right. Yeah, they need to figure so, it out without question. Maybe they need a chart or a directive or something. What, what, what happens that changes his life, and how do they deal with both families? That creates a lot of emotions there. So, I'm sorry, say that again, but what changes his life? Yeah, what, what changes things between them? What happens that changes his life, and how do they deal with both families? Yeah. now so he I has to deal with her, with the girl also. Yeah. So you know, the I would say the the main protagonist in this story is Oliver because he's he's the pivot. Mm-hmm. He's in between his father and his son, so he has to he has to deal with his 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 you know dying dad, and and you know mm-hmm. they come to terms with forgiveness and and, the, and again the communication starts to open up where it becomes, hey listen this is the reason I did what I did. So you may not agree with it, but I, I need you to understand that. And it wasn't because I loved you any less. And I think once once there's some forgiveness mm-hmm. and understanding established, then that relationship becomes much more solid and less you know less needy, right? So then Oliver then pivots to his son Jonah, and then it becomes oh my God, you know I'm going to be a grandfather, and you know to and my son is not prepared to be to be a dad, right? There's things that I haven't taught him yet, so he starts to juice that up. I think really the big thing that changes in this novel is communication. Right, so without them opening up that communication uh, and stop, you know, for them to stop the judgment, regardless if you know if if Oliver is thinking something poorly of his son, right? It doesn't mean he loves him any less. He's just trying, you know, if he can explain to him, this is the way that I think and feel. This is what I believe you should do because I'm your dad and I'm trying to teach you. Once the kid understands that where it's coming from, I think it makes all the difference in the world, and I think that's true for us in all of the relationships that we have. It's all in the way you say it too, without it like an yeah. attack. Absolutely. It, it, Absolutely. So what Very happens? This, I have a double question here. <laughs> yeah, what good. happens when Robert is hospitalized and it changes everything between Oliver and Ginny and Jonah? Do you think it would have right. changed if Robert was not dying? Um, I, I like Robert. I felt bad for him. Yeah, yeah but I, yeah, I did too. But I think, you know, Rob is based on my dad, but I think the man's illness and his impending death is the catalyst for them to start to, to talk, right? Because life is too short for all the BS, mm-hmm. right? So once they see this man who loves them and is trying to impart these final, you know, acts of, of, of love and caring on them, they start to realize, listen, you know, the clock's ticking for all of us, and we need to we need to mend these relationships, and I think again that that illness, that death, becomes a catalyst for the rest of the characters. Even for, and, and if you recall, you know, Robert keeps telling his son like, "You need to make make things right with your wife, right? You need to make things mm-hmm. right with your wife." I mean, that's the basis, that's your foundation, right? Things can happen at work, but you need to be okay at home. Um, and because his dad's dying, he he then, I think he puts a lot more value on what the man's saying because these are his final words, right? And and that helps to heal the family. That's, that's scary. I was just opening the book, which is in front of me. How mm-hmm. would you define, because Robert said, protector and provider. What does he mean by that? 
those are the roles that, that he believes that he plays, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our society, there, there are obviously some stereotypes, right? So, you know, especially years mm-hmm. ago, right, the, the, the woman stayed home. She ended up, you know, taking care of the house. She raised the children, mm-hmm. the, the husband went off. He provided for the family. He protected. I think a lot of those roles have obviously changed. You know, I think in most households today, in order to kind of keep up, we have both parents out of the house working, mm-hmm. so they're both providing. And I think what's happened as a result of that is dads have also had to become more, more nurturing, right, because they're, they're spending more time helping to raise the kids as well. They're splitting, right, they're splitting those, those responsibilities, right? So the dad just by default needs to evolve as well. I mean, mom's at work. I'm home right now. This is what we need. So they play both roles. And I think, you know, years ago, Robert would have never even imagined that. For him, he just went to work. He did his thing. He took care of his family, and he could take pride in that um, and feel good about it, right, while his wife was home, you know, raising his son. Today, it's obviously a little bit different. Well, my grandmother that I live with didn't work. She had five kids, but they weren't hers. They were her, they were oh, wow. her sisters. Yeah, my gra- mm-hmm. I never knew this. My grandmother's sister died way before I was born, or even they thought about me ever. And my grandmother right. brought up five children. I didn't know that till she died under crazy circumstances. And she was my wow. best pal. So it, it, mm-hmm. it got kind of and she was home. My grandfather owned a chain of cleaning stores like the Jeffersons. Right. He, yeah, he was a, it was a long haul, but he did. He managed to buy every one of his sons and son-in-laws a cleaning store, and everybody had to work. So there was no such thing as enabling someone or saying, right. you know, you, you didn't have, and my mother stayed home. Until my dad died, okay. she she didn't work. So it's I guess it's different. So tell us about Layla and why a foreign country, and how do we learn more about Oliver's past, explaining his present? I like right. Oliver so though, Le- despite. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, Oliver's obviously a, a mixed bag, right? And he needs yeah. to because he's stuck in the middle. He's kind of you know still growing and. Mm-hmm. But Layla would be, you know, Jonah's sister and, and Robert's daughter. Uh, mm-hmm. She's not there for, for most of the book, right? She ends up taking off. And yeah. part, part of that is intentional, right? So from a writer's point of view, if I'm writing about male perspective to a female audience, I cannot, I mean, you can only be in one character's head at, at a time, right? So mm-hmm. for me, it was like, okay, we're going to have Robert. And let's just say chapter one is from Robert's point of view, his POV. And then the next chapter is from Oliver's, and then the next chapter is from Jonas. And then we mm-hmm. go back to Robert, and we, can, we continue this cycle with this alternating points of view, but from a male perspective. So when you look at mm-hmm. Jimmy or you look at Layla, um, I don't want to say they're secondary characters because they think they play a, a very strong – they play very strong roles in the book, but you don't really see a whole lot from their, their point of view, right? You just see how they, they act no. and react to things, yeah. not their thought process. So Layla – uh, ends up leaving, and what what I wanted to show there was, you know, she had she had received enough from her from her parents where she could go off into the world and do it herself. Where Jonah, being the younger child, had been a little more coddled, and therefore was kind of a work in progress. It was still kind of working on him. Do you know what I mean? And Oliver comes mm-hmm. to terms with that. Like he has to he has to actually come to terms with the fact that. You know, I raised one of my kids, and, and, you know, they're strong enough to go into the world, and the second one still needs work. And that's really a lot of that because of me. 
Well, how does Layla react to Robert being sick when she finally finds well, out was, that his grandfather yeah, is devastated. sick? Yeah, devastated. Absolutely devastated, right? Because he's the he's the patriarch of the family, so yeah. she needs, you know, she needs to be, you know, she obviously needs that final goodbye. She needs to be a part of this because he was such a mm-hmm. he played a, such a huge role in her life, right? Uh, but again, some of this I don't want to say stereotypical, but you know, the grandfather granddaughter, right? The, the father daughter. You have these bonds, you know that 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 take place, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think Layla was able to, to illustrate that where, you know, at one point, I think we have her on Zoom, right? And uh, the grandfather's mm-hmm. going on with the, you know, with the laptop, but to show generationally how things have changed and, you know, everybody's busy off doing their own lives. Uh, but that Layla was absolutely crushed when she received news that he's terminal. And she couldn't, and she, she was not able to return, was she? No, she wasn't. Which was again that's, very intentional. Yeah. That that's the hardest part. Yeah, so, it, is. it is. So how do they each deal with their personal defeats? Um, first and foremost, I think each one of them has to come to terms with it. They have to be honest with themselves. And I think in this in this life, right, we we spend a lot of time trying to trick ourselves to think that things are better than what they are or that, you know, we don't, we don't need as much work as we do. I think once people become honest, and I'll use these characters as an example, once they became honest with what was happening in their world, only then were they able to start to make, make steps toward improving that, right? Because you can blame, I think Oliver through the whole book and continued to blame his father for the way that he felt or certain things that weren't perfect in his life, but until he owns it, he can't change it. Right, so he really mm-hmm. takes the power away from his father by saying, "All right, listen, I forgive you. The rest of it's on me. This way, I can control the whole thing." And that's really, you know, what it's about. And, the, and for the son, it's the same deal. He, you know, being 19, 20 years old, he's still looking up to his dad. But at some point, he needs to realize, "I'm going to be a father." So somebody's going to be looking up to me. So I need to, you know, dig my head out of my backside and start doing the right thing and grow up. I guess he's. So t- we have to, we have a character we didn't talk about. Talk about Melissa, and she's the girl. Melissa. The g- oh, well, the, the, who's Jonah's girlfriend? Yeah, Jonah's, yeah, Jonah's girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put her as, I know it's funny, I used something there for a second, Frank, because originally her name was different <laughs> in my head. Oh, okay. But, yeah, so she's. I have her coming from a Portuguese family, like an old school Portuguese family where the parents are just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, we don't have children out of wedlock, you know, real. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and the father wants to kill Jonah. But Jonah has to have, the, you know, has to drum up the courage to go face this man and explain to him, you know, that, you know, his daughter is pregnant and they're going to have a family. And so, at 19, 20 years old, I mean, that's traumatic, right, to, to have to do that. But it's also mm-hmm. necessary for him to become, quote, unquote, a man, right? Like to become the type of man mm-hmm. you need to be to be a dad, right? The big thing about this book was I, and I had said this in, in other interviews where, you know, anybody can be a father, right? But it takes, mm-hmm. it takes a, in my opinion, a real man to, to be a dad. The same way with, that's right. know, there's a lot of women that can be mothers, but to be a mom, that's that's a different deal. You know what I mean? That's a different deal. And 
So Jonah could be a father. He's going to be a father. The question is, is he going to be a dad? And in order to be a dad, mm-hmm. he needs to grow up, and he needs to put somebody before himself. And he has never done that, right? So now all of a sudden, I have to put somebody before myself. So his girlfriend, who is like, you know, and they start talking about what the future holds, and there's some decisions to make, and she basically tells him, no, there's no decision to make, right? We're having this baby, and he's forced to face facts here. And make some make some decisions, and his father helps Oliver helps, you know, to to kind of bring him along on that. Well, he has no choice. He has to, you know, take care of the child one way or the other, whether he wants right. an active part in the child's life or not. Right. And you know that 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 one one thing that hit home. It's a real life issue, because you just don't know what how someone's going to react. And yeah, right. he's got to he's got to grow up and realize he's got to, somebody in front of him. Now this this was interesting. The uh, Robert requests something of Oliver. Tell us about the fundraiser and why he wanted him to do that, and what was it for? I found that very interesting. So it was it was important for Oliver um, to take over the legacy, right? So what what we did mm-hmm. is my wife and I we host we host a comedy fundraiser every year mm-hmm. and we have for 12 years we've raised over $200,000 for, for children with terminal illnesses or, you know and what I wanted was to give I wanted to give Robert this, this thing that he had in retirement right so he runs this annual fundraiser now once he finds out that he's no longer going to be around it's important that somebody take, takes that up right and he doesn't want to ask mm-hmm. his son to take this over but the son finally starts to understand, like, oh, this is something that we need to do. So the family, it actually, the event itself in the planning as well as the execution helps to bring the family closer together and say, right, we're going we're gonna to carry on my dad's legacy. Uh, and in the meantime, they forget about their own BS. They end up doing something collectively for somebody, you know, for somebody that really needs help. And without realizing that it's the father, it's Robert imparting one final lesson before he goes, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you dig somebody out of their trouble, if you help, you know, you find a place to bury your own. And that's exactly what they do. But I think that decision from Oliver to say, all right, we're going to take this on and we're going to make this happen helps to change, too. It changes the trajectory of the story a little bit. It changes a lot. Now, I'm looking at page yeah. 227. You see, I do have the book in front of me, people. Yeah. And this just I found interesting, too. Oliver finally comes to understand why his father had spent so many years trying to drink away the painful memories of Vietnam. Why? Right. What, what happened there that changed him and made him realize that, you know, he said there's a lot of ice cream, he thought, realizing that his father was afraid to pay for his own funeral service. But why, why, what happened to his father in Vietnam? That a lot of people come back very different. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. So I did without getting into the nitty gritty detail of it. Yeah. Um, and I did talk a little bit about it, right? But mm-hmm. what I wanted to show as the writer was that we don't always know what's going on in somebody else's world, right? Like mm-hmm. I think I know my my dad, but I don't know if he's you know if he had been traumatized because he didn't talk to me about it, whether or not you know mm-hmm. these things happen. I'm a Gulf War vet. I had a tough time for a while when I came home to to, to readjust from from that experience. My children, they don't know the intimate details of any of that. They know I served overseas, and they're, you know, they're proud of mm-hmm. that. But 
They don't know that I suffered as a result of it. And that, you know, that experience, good or bad, is obviously going to have an impact in the way that I, I father my children, right? So I wanted mm-hmm. that in the book. I wanted Oliver to know that his dad had been a Vietnam vet, but did not understand the level of the breath at which, you know, this man had suffered and therefore helped to define who he was, right? So the more you know about somebody, the more information you have, the easier mm-hmm. it is to understand who they are and, more importantly, why they do and say what they do and say. So I think the whole Vietnam piece, when he starts to go through his stuff and then he realizes, oh, my God, like I didn't know my dad had suffered like this, it changes things. Sometimes you have to look at things from another person's perspective. Yeah, and not just absolutely. be linear. A lot of just be linear on your own. And unfortunately, even if you listen to the world in the news today, and people just look at things from their own perspective and they don't look at the other side. And maybe if right. they did, there wouldn't be so many angers and so many riots and so many fights in the world. Now, absolutely. No, 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 no. Notice how I didn't give the book away. It's still here in front of me. And you know which find I find the most poignant are the letters in this back. How come you added those? It says, "Dear son, how did how did you want Jonah to feel about what he he wrote to him?" I'm sorry. Can, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question just so I can? Yeah, it says, "Strangely, let alone." What what was the letter? Who wrote the letter? Was that Robert or or um, Oliver that wrote the letter to his son? I think it was Robert that wrote the letter. Yeah, it was. That he yeah, opened Robert up. Why did how did right. you Why did you include that? That was so. I cried. That was so sad, the, yeah, uh, what he wrote to his son. And then he writes one to Jonah, he, too, the father. He does, yeah. And it's because, yeah, and then that becomes a legacy, right? Um, so thank you for, for clarifying that. But I, I think what happens is he's able in a letter to explain everything that he couldn't say, right? Because he wasn't, mm-hmm. again, he wasn't raised. In his generation, he wasn't raised to show that, that, that kind of love or to outwardly say, hey, I love you, give him a kiss before he goes to bed. That's not the way he raised his son. Mm-hmm. So he felt uncomfortable with that type of affection uh, in his life. But by writing a letter, he can explain everything to his son exactly the way he feels. And then obviously Oliver feeling the weight of that and the importance of it and the impact that it has on him writes his own son a letter. And within that letter is something that, you know, his son can take with him and then, you know, perhaps pass on to his own child, right? So you have you have this legacy that takes place where, you know, again, I think, I think you know, men and dads have evolved. Um, but there's still, you know, it, there's not a lot of, you know, a lot of times it's like, we, you know, you feel something, but you don't express it. Like, my wife is quicker to, mm-hmm. to, to tell the kids something where I'm, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll give them a nod or a hug or whatever, but um, she's, you know, she's a little more open with them as far as what she feels. And that's just, you know, that's just an innate thing. It's the way that I was raised as well. Before I forget, Monday, Adam Frost will be here with the damn lovely and on Wednesday at 12 at a special time, I am so excited and honored. Cardiologist, world-famous cardiologist, Christina Laporte, dissection. What would you do if you got a note that said in the mail, your heart attack will happen in an hour? You don't oh want to. This, is like, oh, this book was so graphic and so scary. And you're going to learn exactly how to create three types of dissections. I won't give away more. 
On the 24th, Linda Bond, All the Broken Girls. On the 25th, Dr. George Cavuto, and guess who, me, will have a discussion. We're going to talk about how children and young adults learn to read, learning disabilities, how people acquire languages, the four pillars of reading, and my field of reading and writing. And he's been keeping him on my keeping me on my toes for the last year. He's my professor when I got my second master's in reading. And, uh, yeah, we, we have our discussions. He's fantastic. For all those parents that are having trouble with children with learning disabilities and reading, you want to listen. On the, on the 20, 26th, we have um, the author of 13 Hours of Chaos. On the 27th, New York Times author Brian Friedman with my favorite series, Jonathan Stride, Zero Night. And who better to start November than Deb Pines with Wicked Schemes? That's just some of what I'm going to. And those of you that have new books coming out, talk to me in February. I just filled the last one in January. So if you have something coming out next year, yeah, I can't believe it either. You're busy. And yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I got an email from a world-famous uh, young adult author this morning. My nephew reads and I emailed him, and I think I might get an interview with the author of the Bystander series. That would be really cool. So Wonderful. tell us, in the future, Jonah and Melissa, where do you see them going? Is this a, this is a standalone, or are you going to write more? Well, right now it's a standalone. I, you know, in 30 years, I've written 17 books. I have seven national bestsellers, and I've only I've only written one sequel, friend, right? And yeah. it was on the 80 series, only because I thought that the first story needed a little more real estate. But um, I'm not sure. I mean, right now it's a standalone. If I were going to take off and do a do a sequel, it would definitely be on Jonah and, and Melissa, and then you know how that pans out with them, because I think the future mm-hmm. is wide open, right? And that would also Keep Oliver and Ginny in the story as the grandparents. So, I mean, I, I think on a lot of, for, for a lot of the books that I've written, this really kind of sets up a, a nice sequel, right? If I choose to write it, but yeah, it's something for me to think about now that you've mentioned it. Where do you see Oliver and Ginny? They're going to straighten it up. They're going to be more open. Is uh, yeah, she going to realize so. that that he that he's really? not the enemy, and he's going to realize that she's not really the enemy. It's just a communication right. problem, a misunderstanding. I think so. I think so. I think that's the way we have them moving forward, where it becomes, all right, it's never going to be perfect, right? It probably never was perfect. Yeah. But can you remember why, right? If Once you remember why it started in the first place, at least that's a jump-off point, right? And then do we have enough love between us to sustain this for the rest of the road, right? Because at middle mm-hmm. age, I mean, you know, it's not. It's obviously not an easy thing to start over. It's the last thing you want to do if you don't have to do it. Um, but you know, when, again, when you when your last child leaves the house, you know, it's almost take it, like taking a magnifying glass on your entire existence, right? And and you know, is this mm-hmm. where I want to be? Is you know, uh, but in my my mind, yeah, things work out. They work out with Oliver and Ginny. I think they need each other. I think they love each other, and I think they're going to probably enjoy their lives more by, by switching roles from parents to grandparents. I, I agree. But you have to be open and you have to just not be, you know, close-minded, which is hard. So the, the, I just opened the book again, and I realized that Robert was going to be 73 years old, which is mm-hmm. not old people. So how does he? How does Oliver feel when he realizes that this is the last birthday he might spend with his father, and yet he gets to wish him happy birthday? 
which is which right. made me cry too. Which made me cry too. Just let you know. Yeah. So again, this is a wink to my dad because my father was born on September fifth, and he passed on September fifth. Um, and mm. I was there when my dad when my dad passed, and my dad was in his early seventies. Um, so a lot of this obviously is you know autobiographical, some of the detail of it. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean he's devastated. He's devastated, and and he also feels the weight. And this comes from experience, right? Where my mm-hmm. father was the cornerstone, was the cornerstone of the family, right? Like he was, you know, the same way his dad was, you know what I mean? And now mm-hmm. when he passed, I feel that for my family, right? So my kids, you know, at, at my age, I remember thinking, like, my like, God, oh, when my dad turned 55, he's old, right? I remember thinking that when I was young, <laughs> you know what I mean? And now I'm 55, and I'm like, yeah, there's no reason my kids aren't thinking the same thing. Uh, so it's funny how... You know, seasons continue to change, right? And you're moving forward, and you're obviously nobody's stopping time. Mm-hmm. So for Oliver, he really felt the weight of that. Not just, hey, I'm, I'm going to miss my dad and the love and, and you know, all, all, all that we share together, but in the physical sense, right? But I'm also changing roles, and he's in many ways taking on even more responsibility where, mm-hmm. you know, he's the patriarch of the family. No, I understand that. And my dad died in the hospital at night, so I didn't get to say mm-hmm. goodbye to him. He died right after I got my second master's, so at least he got to see that. Wow. It's really weird. I, I know, and, you know, there, I just it's hard to believe sometimes that he's not there. To, right. He used to get me in trouble with my mother. It was so cool. He would say, you know, you need to write these letters to family court. He, I, I know, I, could, I just went to small claims court with him. It was so cool. And he would she would say, where where were you? I said, Mom was walking down the street to get ice cream. I never told on him, and yet I got in trouble, but I didn't care. So <laughs> when people come away with reading this book, because you can learn a lot about parenting, about people, about relationships, what issues and lessons do you hope people will come away with after reading this book? And for those of you, this is Dead by Stephen Manchester, and this you have to read it. It's fantastic. And there are people Thank listening, you. so read it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I mean, the book means, you know, a great deal to me, the messaging in it. But for me, it's mm-hmm. this, right? There's no such thing as perfection, right? Even in parenting, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, there'd be times that you get it right. More times than not, you're probably going to get it wrong. But be there, right? I do a lot of presenting, and I work with single dads, you know, a couple different single dad organizations. And they'll always ask, like, you know, what, what's the best advice you can give to a young father or a new father? Mm-hmm. And the only answer is be there, be present in their lives, right? Even if you're mm-hmm. messing up and you're making the wrong decisions, you're there, right? I, you don't want your child to look back and think he was never there or she was never there. I mean, that, to me, that's, that's the most criminal thing that you can do, having a child and not being present in that child's life. So for me, and I think the whole book is a culmination of that one one piece of advice, just be there, be present. No, I, I agree with you. It's hard. I was a step-parent for 14 years. That's a whole other thing. And right. Yeah, that was tough, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, but right. It took a while. My stepson was, was I, I, when he left, I cried. He was a, he was a wonderful kid. And mm-hmm. because of me, he graduated, and he's in pharmaceuticals or whatever he's doing now. I haven't seen him in 100 That's years. That's awesome. But it's the hardest thing is to be a parent. And it's even harder when it's not your child. Right. So how do you how do you that. deal with that? That's even you, and you have to be there because I was there more than his father was for him. So how right. did you decide on the plot line of this story, and how do you decide on your plot lines because they're all different? 
Yeah, it's all about family. It's all about creating real and relatable characters. I write reality-based fiction. As you know, I write, you know, I'm known for writing tear-jerkers. Again, male perspective to a female audience. But for me, it's all about relationships, and it's about understanding relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny, like, you know, I wanted to write a book about unconditional love. And I'm thinking, wow, between a man and a woman, there are conditions, right? There's things that somebody can do where the relationship ends. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do I write a book about unconditional love? And I took a grandmother and a disabled grandson, and you have Goodnight Brian, right? So, there's, so with that, it was three generations of men uh, in, the, in the different stages of fatherhood, but mm-hmm. also bringing in the entire family and all the craziness that goes with it. And I wrote Ashes about two middle-aged brothers that crossed the country. to. So, so it's all about dysfunction. It's all about family dysfunction. And I think it's, you know, the, the underlying thread for all of my work, Fran, is that, you know, none of us is ever alone, not ever, right? So if I can write a book and, you know, somebody who's suffering or they're having problems and can read that book and think, oh, my God, you know, somebody else gets it, they understand where I'm coming from, then I did my job, right? I don't want people, anybody to think that they're in the boat alone because we're all on the same boat rowing, right? And that's my job. My job is to connect us at a very human level. And I think with Dad, you know, a lot of people have come back to me. And what I love most about Dad, Dad a novel is that most of the feedback I've received from the book has come from women who have thanked me for kind of pulling back the curtain and giving them a glimpse into what it's like to be a man and try, you know, to, to maintain a certain facade. But then inside, you know, we obviously we suffer the same feelings and, you know, the same joys as well, but we're just less expressive. Well, I right? have we news just, for you, know. you. Somebody is listening. Now I'm going to tell okay. you who's listening. Ha ha. <laughs> Her name <laughs> is Marsha Casper Cook. And she's the host of one of my favorite shows, A Good Story is Good Story. And she would like you, I'm going to email both of you, to be on her show to talk about relationships and your novels in January. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you so much. She's she's amazing. She's fun. She doesn't ask questions. We just chat. And if she might want me to be there with you, you poor thing. (laughs) Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, she talks about it. Is your book in audio? Does it come in audio? Yes, yes. Actually, most of my books are in audio. It does, yeah. Oh, good, because she'll listen, and she'll let me know when. And, of course, I'll just okay. put, them in, put it in my schedule, even if I have something else to do, yes. Yeah, because but I, I, this, lo- this I love po- the idea of – go ahead. I'm sorry. Talking about relationships, and you're really good at that, and I'm really good at just listening. Seriously. Right. <laughs> no, you, I, you're phenomenal. But I, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I love doing interviews on on the entire body of work, right? Because, you know, we're talking about Dad today, uh, but we've also mm-hmm. talked about Ashes, The Rocket. Like, if you go back to the original novel that I wrote, uh, 12 Months, again, Relationships, The Rocket Share, Relationships. So it's not just one one piece of work. I mean, the, the, the next book that I write will be about family members. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the dynamic's going to be, but it's going to be about, you know, that human how relationships are in that, you know, we keep bringing that back to communications. That's well, I'm excited about January. You have um, something that I didn't get yet? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to talk offline. If I if I do, I'll send it to you. That's for sure. I don't know. You, you, you put it on Facebook, I think, or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. Right now I'm reading um, Lee Matthew Goldberg's. 
Desire okay. and Desire's End. Scary. Oh my God, is that scary? It's different. Um, how <laughs> right. would you like somebody to meet you, lock you up, put you in a, in a hut, you can't move, and they have videos of your life and what you did to mess up your life? Oh my God. You don't goodness. want to. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's horrifying. I know. The Hunt for Peggy C. I don't know who sent it. It's a historical novel that sounds interesting. And I am honored. I got Cultured, which is coming out in May by D.P. Lyle. Be there May 22nd for my interview. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's like it's like mind-boggling. I get so excited when someone like you or someone like D.P. And November 8th, Philip Margolin by our house, Blackbird House. It's a Robin Lockwood. And it's like amazing. I've been doing this for well, umpteen years, and it's just so much fun. So what, the next one you said you don't have a title for, but um, yeah, I'm actually the, I'm, I'm writing a I'm, I'm, yeah I I'm working on a book called The Fort, um, okay, which is which takes place in a prison. So I spent ten years working in a medium security uh, prison when I was a young man. Mm. I started when I was nineteen, and yeah, so and I don't think I've always wanted to write a story that takes place in a prison. But again, character driven, going to be about relationships, right? But the setting itself will be, you know, quite eerie, um, and it'll be very mm. accurate because I've spent a lot of time there. Um, so I'm excited about, you know, to be working on that. I'm not sure. I'm thinking I should finish it, you know, at some point in 2023. So I'll be in touch for sure, friend. Oh, not a, not a problem. Not a problem. I'll just stick it in my schedule. That's not a problem at all. As a matter of fact, I didn't even realize that the week of the 24th, I have four interviews. That's the first. <laughs> But we'll, we'll 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 do them all. So you said that is what's what's next for you. But what is the? Do you do you write an outline? Do you have a thought before? We have about uh, eight minutes. Do you have a thought before? Yeah, do you I, have a. What? How do you decide how to write it? Yeah, usually it's a plot line. So there's a book, you know, a book concept or an idea that comes up, and it'll be something random. I'm walking the dog, or I'm taking a shower, and then all of a sudden it hits me. Oh my God, this is the next story I need to write. And once I have that book concept, I either fall in love with it or I don't, because I know it's going to take the next six to nine months of my life to flesh it out and turn it into an actual novel. So if I really feel passionate enough about it, I'll start, you know, what we call a storyboard. And then it's really, for me, the trick, you know, the trick to my success has been about character development. It's about really fleshing out characters that people feel are real. And I've mm-hmm. had people come back to me, so oh my God, like you, you know, you wrote a story about my father or my uncle or my my grandmother, and that's a compliment to me mm-hmm. because I spend a lot of time working on the characters. Um, and then scene settings always going to be. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few other times I haven't written in New England, but I come from New England, so it's just easier for me to set my books there. Um, dialogue is a continual. Mm-hmm. I, I do a lot of. I spend a lot of time observing people. And how they, mm-hmm. they, they converse with each other. It's kind of amazing. Like if you spend the time, you know, most people don't finish a full sentence. You know, there's internal dialogue going on. They're thinking about other things while they're talking. So it's, I try to do a lot more of that. And, and the, every novel that I write, um, I continue to put more and more internal dialogue because I think it brings the reader in closer to the, mm-hmm. the character and, how, you know, obviously how they think, but also how they feel, which makes a big difference. I'm going to have to learn how to do that and listen more carefully when we talk about relationships and stuff, because that's my problem. I write from the point of view of a dead person that gets that speaks right. in, in yeah. first person, because a dead person has did something wrong, and either they're accused or they deserve to be dead because I killed them off. 
but my face is behind the stone <laughs> series. But yeah, I'm just serious. And I'm writing book right. eight, number eight. But okay. even Marsha will tell you I need to learn how to write dialogue so we could, you know, talk about that too. I, I could yeah, write I dialogue with myself, but when it comes to two people talking, I tell the other person to shut their mouth. I don't want to hear it. What can I say? Right. So I've got it's to funny. learn. I used so, to teach, you know, I've taught kids, uh, you know, a young writers, and I'll say, listen, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, well, back in the day, right, you go to the mall and you sit in the food court, and I would sit there and just listen mm. to, to a conversation, right? And, you know, if there's two or more people or there's just two people, and you listen to the way people speak to each other, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of Han, there's a lot of pause, there's a lot of uh-huh. – you know, if you can write that way, then it becomes so incredibly believable. So I continue to try to strengthen my dialogue as well, but we can certainly talk offline. I can give you some tips on that. I should have listened closer to my students who still speak like that. <laughs> right. No, I I I, yeah, I, taught, I was a writing and writing staff developer, and the kids wrote the way they spoke, and it was really interesting. And the fun part was they never. I, when I walk into the room, they would stand up and applaud. She's here. Wow. She's not going to put a. Yeah, it was it was an honor because these were tough fourth graders and tough fifth graders, and they would say, "She's the only one that's not boring." Of course, you never knew what I was going to do. Ever. <laughs> I love it. And you never knew what, what my topic was going to be, ever. I mean, I wow. think the hardest thing was my principal, who was complete, not bright at all. And she said, right. this is, I want the children to write about spring. I go, God, I'm going to fall asleep on this one. And I said right. to them, I had to come up with something on the spot. I said, you know, boys and girls, I'm not going to tell you to write by spring and the holiday. Who cares? You're going to write a letter to spring and beg spring to come. Or you could write a letter to winter and tell winter to stick around for six weeks because you'll have more snowstorm and days off. You decide. They thought it was that was hilarious. They they each wrote a letter to spring or to winter, and their reasoning skills were great. It's better than saying writers write all about the weather. So where can we read, learn more about you and your work? And everybody that hasn't read Stephen Manchester's books, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Thank you. So where can we find you? Amazon, where else? Uh, Amazon. I mean, you know, a lot of bookstores. Um, obviously, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, um, all over the place. You know, if, if I also kind of pride myself on being one of those approachable authors so i'm on facebook um if you want to connect with me please reach out i'd be happy to to connect with you always looking for you know new readers and, and people to jump on the team and and uh you know i i normally put out a book a year uh that's been my thing for the last eight ten years um so i keep the, the content moving but yeah i think facebook is probably the best social media for me i'm on instagram mm-hmm. as well and then for my books, um, you know, it's it basically the Amazon, both in hardcover, uh, print, hardback, you know, e-books. I have quite a few of my titles that are audio as well. So, yeah, if somebody want, you know, somebody who hasn't heard or read my stuff, I'd appreciate a shot. I really would. That would be great. And they should read your stuff because it's different and it's got messages and I love it. But I want to thank you so much. This is thank brightening you. my day for a lot of reasons, let me tell you. I put you in an email with Marsha so you could discuss the particulars. And she's a lot okay. of fun, and she probably want to talk to you in person on the phone. So yeah. just be ready. She's, she's great. And thank she's, you so much. She's very down to us. My pleasure. Everyone, it's a beautiful day outside, and everybody, you need to learn to communicate positively. Everybody have a great day. Stephen, thank you, and bye. Thank you, friend. Thank you.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.